Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where things are going really smooth right now in mad max 2 the road warrior one minute at a time i'm rick and i'm julia and today we're talking about minute 78 which begins with one massive final explosion from the compound and it ends with some bad cops pulling up alongside lord humongous technically in this minute we get two frames of the curmudgeon with his head sticking out the window but i defy you (laughs) (laughs) to try and see those two frames with the naked eye. It's very difficult. It's it's negligible. I don't even know why I brought it up. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me when I was prepping for yesterday's minute, I hit the pause button right at the perfect time to see the terrified, terrified look on the feral child's face (laughs) as Max is about to ram through the cars and the marauders standing around not doing anything Mm -hmm. before he ducks (laughs) i could not hit that same point even if i tried (laughs) it was so brief but it was so great the real first shot of this minute is one final humdinger of an explosion from the compound it's seen from a good front-on angle and this final blast is so strong that you can literally see the shockwave blast across the landscape and it is really something do you think they set up this particular explosion to go off last because it's the one that sent the tire wall flying oh absolutely that tire wall must have weighed a lot tires are the sort of thing that are surprisingly heavy yeah you look at them and you're like oh that probably doesn't weigh that much and then you actually go to move it and you're like oh Uh uh-huh The amount of rubber and steel threading in this is just way more than I thought it would be. And there were some really big tires in that wall. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there were. The force required to launch those as high into the air as they were. I shudder to think. After the explosion has settled for a moment, we get a nice high up view of the smoke plume. Mm -hmm. A couple things about that. The first is this... Max and Captain's vantage point that they were hanging out at? I feel like it is. Yeah, it looks, there's a kind of a gnarly tree over on one side, and I think that was the tree that Max was using as a tripod of sorts to prop up his binoculars. I think you're right. The angle that we're sitting at, if it's not the exact spot, it's at least really close to it. And the second thing, we learned from the behind the scenes documentary that George Miller and Associates were, of course, very pleased with the explosion except for one aspect Mm -hmm. the wind had blown the smoke plume off to one side it wasn't going straight up and down from the compound and you can tell even with the wind that that explosion produced a massive mushroom cloud yes like it blew up and then it started curling around on itself and it of course it's tilted off to one side but you can just see it churning there and it would have looked so perfect going up in a straight column i think they mentioned that in the commentary as well that it was nearly perfect and that if not for the wind it would have been absolutely flawless a cool detail that i noticed about this explosion this last one and it's something that made me go back to listen to yesterday's minute again when we see the compound explode initially we don't have any score 
We don't have any music from Brian May. It's just explosion and debris flying around. And it's not until this explosion at the beginning of minute 78 that the score makes a comeback. And I feel like it's kind of an auditory punctuation mark, an exclamation right at the end of everything of Brian May just bringing it back in. Yes. The score rising up like this is really good because we have a white transition that brings us onto the road where the rig and Papagallo are driving just about as fast as they can away from the raiders that are pursuing them. Now, this sequence, and I should say the majority of the final chase, were filmed on the road from Broken Hill to Menindee. According to MadMaxMovies.com, they have their locations page. Apparently, you can follow the road out past the section used for the cannonball stunt that we'll see later on. You head further out about another 15 kilometers, and then you'll hit a long, straight stretch of road that's about four kilometers in overall length. Basically, they just drove back and forth on that one stretch to get all of their shots. That seems like a very convenient location because there's not too much by way of landmarks. It's pretty flat. Yeah. There's not even like trees or brush. Except for the sun, there's really no difference in which direction you're going. And I mean, with the way they're moving around, even then, it's not that noticeable. No, I never noticed the sun moving around in odd ways. Never struck me. At least not yet. Perhaps in 79, 80, the rest of the movie, maybe it will, but not as far as 78. Nope. As we are flying, because we are flying over the road here, we get to see pretty much everything that the Horde has to offer. I counted nine cars or trucks, I, I kind of lumped those two together, mm-hmm. and an additional six motorcycles following the rig. That's about 15 different vehicles chasing only a rig and a car. And that is, oh, daunting odds. Yes, it is. One thing that really struck me about most of this minute is the way that George Miller is setting the scene for things to come. He's showing us everybody in this chase. Mm -hmm. We get a good look at the Horde. We go on to get a good look at Zeta, the mechanic, warrior woman. We get to see where they're positioned, the weapon that they're carrying. We get to see Max. We don't get to check in with the feral child in this minute, though. I don't think so. He's not part of the ramp, which is interesting. But George does set the scene for us so that as things get more hectic, we still have a sense of who is there and kind of what position they are in. It's one thing that I really appreciate because when you've got a lot of vehicles moving at high speed, it's really easy to start losing track of things. And the way that Miller shoots it, you always have a really good sense of how far people are away from each other, who's in, who's out. And it just makes keeping track of the frenzied action so much easier. You make fun of me sometimes, and you've probably done it on the podcast, that I'm not really into action sequences, specifically car chases. But that's mostly because I'm not following what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm not paying attention. Like, oh, okay, it's a car chase. Well, I'll come back when it's over and find out what happened. Because I'm not following along with who's doing what. Mm. And I, I think that's because of the way that modern movies are shot, that it's so quick and fast. And I'm not keeping track of who is where and what they're doing. Mm. But George Miller's complete opposite. 
I know where all the cars are all the time. Another thing I like about it is that George is focusing on the people. We're flying over the Horde. We don't need to see their faces because they're expendable. But we come over, we see Zeta, and he's got his crossbow. We see the mechanic, and he's behind his thing. And we can see Warrior Woman with her bow at the ready. We're not so much following vehicles. We're following people. And these are people that we've come to care about. People that we're invested in. Yes. And I think that's a huge difference compared to something else like, let's say, that scene from Batman Begins where he's in the tumbler and he's evading the cops. Mm-hmm. That scene is not easy to follow because everything's dark and he's darting around everywhere and suddenly he's on rooftops. And we know that Batman's going to get out of it because the movie is called Batman Begins and Batman can't really... <laughs> begin if he never has a chance to start anyway so there's no tension and he's vastly outclassing all the other people in that chase and it's just very easy to tune out because it's going to have no consequence once we're done with that flyover shot we transition over to the front of the tanker and we get to see it driving quickly down the center of the road. I feel like this series has a history of large trucks driving down the center of the road. <laughs> yes, it does. It caused a lot of trouble for us back in season one when we had that brain fart where we forgot what side of the road Australians drive on. Right, because the answer is they drive down the center of the road, right? Right. <laughs> Because last we were going off that last truck, and that last truck was going down the dead center of the road. Right. If Mad Max has taught us anything, Australians drive in the middle of the road. <laughs> At least in this instance, there's a reason for it. Yes. A specific reason that we can decipher right off the bat. If you're driving down the center of the road, it leaves less space for people to go around you. Mm-hmm. Although, devil's advocate, plenty of the marauders... Vehicles are off-roading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the motorcycles are off in the dirt. And while a lot of the more normal cars are on the pavement, there are two dune buggies in amongst the Raider vehicles. And they're off on the side of the road because they can do that. Yeah. They're specifically built for off-road, so they're not going to take up real estate on the pavement. Yes. Which this is something opposite to what we noticed in Mad Max 79, where nobody left the road ever unless they were crashing, even if it might have been to their advantage. Mm -hmm. They didn't leave the road. Something that you can see... In this head-on shot with the rig is you can see Papagallo swerving behind the rig, and it looks like he's playing interference, making sure that none of the pursuing vehicles can get that close to the tanker, which is a pretty slick move. However, we go from that front-on shot of the rig, we get a close-up on Papagallo as he's driving, and then he veers off the road, just drives away. Yeah, at first glance, I, I didn't know why he did that. It came to me, though, that he was trying to lure away some of the pursuers. Mm-hmm. By my count, he was able to draw off three motorcycles and at least one buggy, but it does look like there's a second one in the dust cloud. Yes, I saw the second one in the dust cloud barely, so I did put it in my count I only saw two motorcycles, but you have frame-by-frame abilities that I don't have, so I'm going to go with your number. Yeah, I think it might have been a situation where the bike was obscured by the lone wolf, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. I like the idea of them chasing after the lone wolf as a matter of pride for the Horde to reclaim that vehicle. Yeah, it was theirs. Yeah, and if they can't reclaim it, then destroy it. It's one of those things, if they can't have it, no one can have it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I have a feeling that Papagallo was hoping to lure off more people than he actually did. Four or five is a good number, but out of 15, 
that's less than a third. Well, uh, considering that Lord Humongous specifically wants the tanker and perhaps doesn't care much about the lone wolf in Papagallo, I'm not that surprised. Mm. If it takes a few guys going off and keeping the lone wolf busy so it can't help defend the tanker, then I think it's worth it to sacrifice a few. That's a good point because Papagallo is thinking that he's being helpful by leading off some of these guys. And he's not. He's making a bad judgment call. Yeah, I think... He's more useful sticking with the tanker and running interference, as we will see specifically tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The major advantage that the rig and the lone wolf have over all of the raider vehicles is that they have full gas tanks. If it got to the point where Papagallo was so effective at keeping people off of the tanker that the raiders could not get close, they could, in theory, just outrun the horde. Eventually, those tanks are going to run out. Yes, and we know that the tanker and the lone wolf started out tippy-topped off. Mm -hmm. The horde, however, I doubt that they were topped off. Oh, yeah, they've been driving around in circles for the last several days. Mm -hmm. Not pillaging other places that might have fuel. Because you bet any of those places that have fuel nearby have already been picked clean. Mm -hmm. They've been there for an extended campaign, so all of those places that are close by that they can get fuel from, yeah, they've already gone there. Right. That's the drawback of the hunter-gatherer yeah. nature of the horde, is that once a place is picked clean, then you're done. You have to move on. Yeah. After we see Papagallo drive off to do whatever he thinks is going to be helpful. We check in with Max, who is still very serious, still driving the rig. And then we get another high-angle wide shot on the tanker, and we can see Virginia and the mechanic sitting up there behind their welded-on fortifications. I don't think we've talked before yet about their fortifications and the style of the fortification. First of all, right off the bat, it looks like the throne from Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. It kind of does. Yes. Like when it first started out, it didn't have that many swords on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very clever. It reminds me of those anti-pigeon spikes that you see on windowsills and fancy high-up places that are hard to get to that you don't necessarily want to be constantly cleaning because of birds. Yeah. It's pointy in such a way that if you tried to attack it head-on, it would end up poking you long mm. before you can ever get close. Yes. I like how visually it gives the tanker an interesting silhouette. It's very stylized that way. Yes. You know, that's a really good point. This movie, I can't believe we haven't talked about this before. This movie has a lot of great silhouettes, which we have talked about some of the great silhouettes. But what it's never reminded me of before is the sci-fi TV show Face Off, mm -hmm. where visual effects artists compete week to week. And the judges, one of the things that they love is a great silhouette. It helps define a character before you even get to see its face or get to see any of its details. And the tanker at this point is a character. We've seen it transition and grow. The tanker has more of an arc in this movie than Max does, for crying out loud. <laughs> yeah. So the silhouette of the fortifications on the tanker tell us something important about the tanker, that it is ready for battle, that it is reinforced, that there are people who 
are willing to die to defend it. And those are personality traits of this character, the tanker. And how pointy and sharp those edges are, it lets you know that the tanker is not going to go down without a fight. No. There's one specific part of this tanker, though, that Zeta is intimately familiar with that ends up being a bit of a disappointment, but at least it puts up a good fight before it eventually gives in. It does. that's going to be another thing for later on. Might be for Friday. I'm pretty sure it's Friday. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So you can look forward to that. Yes. (laughs) Overall, not much happens in this minute. A lot of preparing for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Although, not as much preparing as I would like. Because in that high shot where we see the mechanic and warrior woman sitting in their battle nests, or whatever we want to call them. (laughs) Uh, Battle nest is a great name. I feel like warrior woman is wasting her talent sitting at the front of the tanker because none of the bad guys are even close to being at a point where she would be effective with her bows and crossbows. Yes, they will be. She will be needed there. But to start out, not so much. Mm-hmm. I do feel like they should have been, all three of them should have been at the back of the tanker picking people off from the get-go. Mm-hmm. As soon as they began using the tanker as a weapon, and as soon as they were within range of any foes, they should have been throwing Molotov cocktails. They should have been shooting people before they even got in their cars. Mm -hmm. I feel like Fury Road really takes the lessons learned from the tanker and fixes them. For instance... Yeah. The rear fortification on the tanker holds one person. The rear platform holds one person. In Fury Road, I'm pretty sure the tanker is larger just overall, but the rear fortification on that thing holds multiple people and has more weaponry. When they blew up that compound, they left behind the flamethrower and the giant scorpion ballista. Yeah. Oh, oh, they could have taken the flamethrower with them. Can you imagine? That would have been so good. Yes, that would have been so good. And the ballista, yep, Mm -hmm. that also would have been so good. Yeah. Just another comparison that we have had multiple times through this movie between Road Warrior and Fury Road, where Fury Road just takes an element and ramps it up to 11. Mm -hmm. This whole minute is, like you said, a series of rampings up. <laughs> ramp ups? Ramp ups, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a it's not a bicycle ramp or a skateboard ramp or a playground slide or It's an action ramp. It's an action ramp. Fun fact that I just learned, apparently, and this is not something I knew before, North America has a species of wild onion that is called a ramp. Well, I find that fascinating because I love onions. Yeah, it's Allium trichocum. It's also known as a spring onion, a ramson, a wild leek, a wood leek, and wild garlic. Those are oh, okay. names for it. I like leeks. I like leeks a lot. I'm not a big fan of leeks because they let the water in. Yeah. <laughs> Such a butt. <laughs> Oh, boy. I'm going to put leeks on the menu next week on purpose, just so you can make puns all throughout dinner. I appreciate that. I know I love how you set me up like that. (laughs) There's one final shot to this minute that involves a red car with a couple of bad cops inside, and they're coming up alongside the Lord Humongous's truck. Now, this red car is, according to the Mad Max movies vehicles page, it's a Holden Murano. It's... 
Got a weird custom front on it, though. And, of course, the opening in the roof that the bad cop climbs through. There are a couple of different people that have contacted MadMaxMovies.com to talk about that front grille. Some people think it's from a 1940 Chevy. Some people thought it was from a Ford Mark I Zephyr, which is a British car. And there's also another person that suggests it might be from a 1940s Buick. But whatever it's from, the, I would say, rounded nature of that front end really makes it stand out from the very hard angles of the Lord Among Us's truck, for sure. Yes, it didn't stand out to me. I didn't notice it. <laughs> I think the important thing in this shot is the <laughs> fact that a bad cop is climbing out of the hole in the roof and is shimmying across. We don't Get to see where he's going in this minute, though. Nope, we'll catch up with that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Kind of a blasé Wednesday, but at least tomorrow is going to have a lot more happening. In oh, it. yes, we absolutely make up for it tomorrow. I, <laughs> I cannot wait. We're going to see where that bad cop's going. We're going to get to talk about sunglasses and doors and windows and all sorts of fun stuff. So come back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for a minute. 78 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.